season is is almost upon us so we're going to start seeing more and more of that polarization for sure yeah well welcome to monday's live stream solid ground live i think this is number 35 august 28th 2023 and today we are joined by jennifer richmond from the institute for liberal values and it's really nice to have you here with us jennifer thank you i'm excited to be here yeah we're excited to have you i'd love to get you to tell us a little bit more about the Institute for Liberal Values. But first, David, would you like to introduce Solid Ground? Sure. Thanks, Leslie. Yeah, so Solid Ground is a peer support community for anyone concerned about the imposition of critical social justice, CSJ, aka woke, and or COVID mandates in their workplace, university, children's school, or community. We offer weekly online peer support groups in which members share ideas, thoughts, and support for how to navigate the impact of these ideologies. And to answer the question, where do we go from here? You can join one of our groups for only $5 per month. To find out how to join our community, please visit solidgroundsupport.com. And please note Solid Ground does not provide psychotherapy or legal advice, and nothing we do should be construed as such. Thank you. Thank you. What a very like professional and sober reading of, <laughs> of the blur. I'm going to get my telephone voice on when I read that out, don't I? And you didn't try your honky tonk accent or anything. It was just no, it's only special occasions. Accent? I want to hear your honky tonk accent. Oh, I can't do it every week, unfortunately. You know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in Texas, so I'm going to give us a little bit of a honky tonk accent. I want to, <laughs> you know. I mean, come on now. <laughs> yeah. David, I can maybe use. <laughs> I'll do my honky tonk accent for you all right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now Jennifer, where's your British accent? <laughs> you know, I was giving a story the other day, and I was telling the story about speaking of when I was stopped in 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 Texas by a Texas cop, and and I had my British friend with me. She was in the car, and you know, this was a new experience for her. And so the cop comes up, and he, she's walking up behind me, and my friend looks at me. She goes, "Oh my God, this is so exciting! It's like cops and robbers." And I look at her, and I go, "Shut that." Uh, we're about ready to get a ticket so anyways how was that was, was that okay yeah very good very good it's a okay. texas british accent that's really good i know where, i know <laughs> where in texas are you jennifer i am in austin right now uh i've lived in austin by the way since 2000 well on and off i you know went to work on my phd at ut austin um but, but I'm I'm actually putting my house on the market. I am done. done. Really? First of all, the it's heat. 109 degrees. I know. Like, yeah. Everything. Yeah. There's that. Yeah. And I'm just, you know, I just uh talking about like liberal values and you know, which I'll get into. Maybe I'll use my hawking talk accent to tell you about IV. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I just feel like Austin has become uber politicized, mm -hmm. uber polarized. And at some point, even though this is the work that I do and the, you know, where I feel like I'm called to lead, I just need a little space. You know, I, I grew up in San Antonio. And so Austin was the place we'd go when we wanted to go somewhere cool. So, you know, uh, you'd go to Austin on the weekend or I, I'd skip school with my boyfriend when I was in high school and we'd drive up to Austin and go to record stores and walk around. It was just a cooler place, a university town. It was it was, it had a lot of really neat culture that was different from where I was from. But when I moved to Seattle in 2009, I thought, oh my gosh, it's like Austin, but with a better climate. 
it was it's so similar so i can imagine that the sort of things that are going on in seattle and are, are very similar to what's going on in in austin right now i was just hearing from friends that the homeless problem is really really extreme and so some other political stuff there going on yeah yeah i mean it's i it very similar to seattle i'd say but with the heat like you said and and there's you know I don't want to get into this too much, but you know, the, let's just on the homeless issue, this is something that we have got a, a program here. It was started by a Christian group, uh, Mobile Loaves and Fishes, and they started something called Community First. And it's all these little, little, they're tiny houses for um, homeless, you know, uh, citizens. I'm not sure what you'd say, but and it's brilliant. I mean, these people come together, and you have to like, you have to live. You have to either, you know, the tiny houses are cheap, uh, and you know, maybe. $500 a month or whatnot. But you, in order to be a part of this community, you have to be a part of the community, whether you're working and you're paying, you know, outside of the community or you're actually working within the community. And the it's it's magic. I mean, this community, the people have, they've got their own um, uh, cemetery there. They have their own you know, church there. They work together. And what they have found is because these, you know, one of the things with homelessness is that people find themselves homeless and they have no one to lean on, right? So either that, you know, they, their family is gone or, or whatnot. And so this is what drives then alcoholism and mental health issues and et cetera. You come to this place and because you're a part of a community, like the incidences of drug use and alcoholism, it all goes down because there is, it is something where people are there and lifting you up. It is so brilliant. I just don't understand why we can't, even as a city or a state or a country, implement this over and over and over again. So you see this, even though it's there and it's a private organization or a nonprofit, you know, Austin, meanwhile, is spending you know, millions of dollars to buy hotels to create these places that aren't creating community. And it's just money down the drain. And so anyways, I went off on, sorry on that, but that is a big thing to me. I mean, I just see in plain view, an answer, a solution that is working. And yet going back to Austin or just even government in general, I mean, we just don't know. Uh, how can we not get there? I don't know. There's my thing. That's my soapbox. I will. No, it's a good point. I think it's it's good that you're seeing some something that's working. I, I know in Seattle, there's been a lot of money poured into the addressing the homeless issue, and it just seems to get worse every year. I have yeah. some friends who came in from out of town yesterday, and so I drove down to Seattle, and they were asking, it had been like five years since they'd been there, and they were just shocked at how different it looks, just just shocked. And I, I feel like it's a bigger conversation and I don't understand enough about it to really be able to meaningfully weigh in. But obviously some, there are, there's a lot of money being poured into solutions that aren't solutions at this point. So what you're yeah. saying, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I guess could, you know, I guess we could back up a little bit and ask you a little bit about what you do more broadly. So people who haven't, haven't met you before or been introduced to your work, can learn a little bit about who you are. Awesome. Well, and I'll share a little bit about ILV, Institute for Liberal Values, of which um, Solid Ground is, is a part of it. ILV, it started a couple of years back, but it really was this year. So as some of you might know Counterweight, which Solid Ground and a lot of you, everyone here was a part of Counterweight. Counterweight decided to close its doors. And so most of the resources, including the work that we were, were doing together now with Solid Ground, came over to ILV. 
And the idea between I, with, with ILV is trying to recapture liberal values. And what do we mean by liberal values? I mean, classical liberal values, freedom of speech, the stuff that the country was founded on in the first place, freedom of speech, freedom of association, et cetera, that I feel we have, we have moved away from, but on both the left side and the right side. And so it's really trying to recapture that, trying to, you know, we've got, obviously solid ground is a major part of, of that initiative insofar as that's the peer-to-peer -peer network where people can come together and feel like we were just talking about with the homeless situation, a community around liberal values. And then the other stuff that ILV is doing is actually just trying to educate on what is liberalism. I think we've forgotten, you know, and, and there's so many, like, like the problem that we have with language today. I mean, people define it differently. Uh, you know, we have to, really what we're doing right now is making sure that we're um, having the same conversation. So one of our first things that we're doing is we're working with a partner called Mutual Persuasion, and we're creating an argument clinic. That's just really given the basis. How do you even like have an argument in the first place? How do you have this? Uh, and, and, and also, let me back up and say that argument isn't bad. Like that is one of the fundamentals of how we learn and how we grow. And that is truly like the foundation of a liberal society. So ILV is also working with, you know, it's basically a partnership type organization. Again, much like we're partners with Solid Ground is bringing in these other organizations like Mutual Persuasion. We work a lot with Free Black Thought too, to educate on what are liberal values. One of the biggest projects that we're working on right now is we've joined the Coalition for Empowered Education. And again, part of that coalition is ILV, it's Free Black Thought, it's uh, the Chinese American Citizens Alliance of Greater New York, it's the Chinese American uh, Coalition for Education, and the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values as well. So we're a partner in there, we're the lead partner for that. But this is what is really like, this is what speaks to me. And this is where, you know, I get very excited about what ILV is doing is we were presented with a problem. And the problem really stems from how we're teaching in K through 12 education. And this really matters to me because I think that if we are, if we aren't teaching our kids how to think critically and how to think, not what to think, which I don't think we're doing. I don't think we're gonna have the citizens that are gonna address the issues of homelessness, polarization, et cetera. So we were presented with a problem. What we were seeing was, you know, we talk a lot about DEI and I think now, I'm, I'm inspired by, I see a lot of people starting to pull back from the whole DEI conversation and say, hey, I think we, I think we went the wrong way. But what's happening in K through 12 education is it's still these, these really insidious thoughts are still kind of filtering in through different avenues. And so where we're seeing this the most right now is in ethnic studies in the United States. And David, I'm not sure about, you know, if this is a something that you also see in the UK, but what we're seeing is ethnic studies is coming in and it's particularly, it's, although it's spreading all across the United States, it's really in California where we see the most movement around this. And a lot of the, uh, it, it, the, the basis of ethnic studies is on Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So you still see this binary oppressor oppressed, and you still see this classification on this, what you look like here, right? So your skin color, your, your, your ethnicity, your race, it, it, it isn't about the individual. And when we go back to liberal values, that's one of the cornerstones of liberal values, right, is, is, is centering the individual. And so this does the opposite of, the, of that. Add to this, add to this. 
that a lot of it has a, a, a neo-Marxist bent. This is what shocks me the most about this is, so a little bit of background on me. I'm, I, I came into this world as a China scholar. And the reason that I started to get involved with this is I came back to the United States and saw this disintegration of, 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 of a liberal society in a way that mirrored a lot of stuff that I'd studied and see happening in China. And so that was kind of my first red flag. Anyways, back to ethnic studies. One of the things that they do, this is so crazy to me, is instead of um, upholding uh, civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King or John Lewis or Third Grove Marshall, they are upholding revolutionaries like Che Guevara, like Mao Zedong, like Pol Pot. I am sorry, this one, this one drives me crazy. Pol Pot, this is where we're not even teaching history. For people who don't, and I understand because I'm a China scholar, I'm into all this. Pol Pot was lead, led the world's greatest genocide ever. And so we're upholding people like that in these ethnic studies courses, and we're teaching our kids what to think, not how to think, not how to think critically. And we're telling them that, uh, again, we're going into the binary, much like we saw at DEI of oppressor oppressed. And to me, that is one of the most frightening things. And so going back to ILV, this is right now, I would say of our partnerships, this to me is where we've, we are putting a lot of our energy and a lot of our focus with the ultimate goal. Right now, our goal is just to educate around it because it's so, so many parents don't know what they're seeing. I mean, when you talk about ethnic studies, the words that they use like true democracy or truer democracy, I mean, who can fight with democracy, right? I mean, the, we, we love that. But those words are very specific to a Marxist agenda. Hmm. Those are the same, that's the same language that was used in the Soviet Union. And so right now we're trying to educate parents around what, how to identify what they're, you know, when they're taking a, an ethnic studies course, which we believe in, we think ethnic studies is great if it's done right. But a lot of the ethnic studies is this liberated ethnic studies, which is what I was just talking about. And, kind of complaining about where with the neo-Marxism. And so our first goal is to teach parents and educate parents so that when they see ethnic studies, they can identify if it's the good kind of ethnic studies, which is, you know, that's, that is the true diversity that ultimately we want and that a liberal society upholds, or if it's this liberated ethnic studies. The ultimate goal though would be to uh, create teacher training. So a lot of what we see going on right now is in this, a lot of the teacher training schools, they're teaching our kids, they use the pedagogy of the oppressed to teach the teachers. And so the teachers, whether it's ethnic studies or even math, I mean, we've seen this right now, it doesn't have to be ethnic studies, math are coming into the classroom with this ideology already baked in to how they're, they're addressing education. So I think I had to said a whole lot right there. That's kind of where we are. That's where ILV is. That's where I am. That's where my heart is. And uh, th those, that's, that's what we're working on. Well, I think that's really, that's really uh, admirable and important what you're doing in terms of education. And when you're talking about educating parents to be able to recognize these things, and then you talk about how the teachers are trained, that makes me think of where's, what, what's really at the root and what's really the goal with this kind of work is it in the if it's in the teacher trainings then it's in the academic institutions that are teaching teachers and then it's also in the curriculum that's being distributed to children so how do we what is the 
what is the goal of getting parents to recognize it? Is it in order to get parents to help put pressure on these institutions in order to get them to reform the way that they are the propagandizing students? Yeah, yeah, it, it is because there again, there there are good ethnic studies out there, and so it's for them to be able to recognize, and particularly in states like California, where they are now mandating ethnic studies in order for you to graduate. That's not true around the U.S., although it's a trend that we see trickling in Minnesota. There's some talk about it actually in Texas, even which is surprising to me, um, Virginia. But is so that the parents recognize this, and then they put the push back not on ethnic studies per se, but on the type. So the, the schools themselves have a choice of what kind of ethnic studies they bring into the classroom. And we have, you know, ILV through the Coalition of Empowered Education has alternative ethnic studies curricula that Do we the can schools actually- really have that choice? Each school does or each district or how is that? How does that work? Because I, I don't know how much choice schools have in terms of curriculum. It is my understanding, and I, I'm I'm not 100% sure, however, but it is my understanding, Leslie, that schools, they know that they have to have ethnic studies in California, and where they get that is the school or the district. I'm not sure if it's school mm -hmm. by school or district by district, but it is it is a choice of, you know, by the district, at the very least, if not the school itself, what program they use for ethnic studies. The program that we're most concerned about is what we've called the liberated ethnic studies uh, model curriculum. And that model curriculum actually, it was, it was so egregious, the first cut of it, that they actually voted, the state voted it out and you cannot teach this. But here's the crazy thing. So they, they said, you cannot teach this. This, I mean, it was very anti-Semitic. Again, it was just incredibly Marxist, et cetera. But what they didn't do is say, okay, they said, you can't teach this, this will not be the curriculum. But then they went ahead and said, but you have to take ethnic studies. So the people who created that curriculum in the first place that even was voted out and said, and, and the state said, we will, this is, this will not be the ethnic studies curriculum, now are taking that curriculum, going to districts or schools and, and, and selling it. And that's what's not being uh, reported on and Honestly, you know, there's a question of whether or not this is even legal, given the fact that the state of California said no to this particular curriculum. Now, they did tone down some of it, but it was still something that they have. So to answer your question, the state itself does not have a curriculum that it's working on. Mm -hmm. All it has, to my knowledge, and there's some, you know, uh, fine tuning there that I'm not completely, you know, uh, in the know with the granularity of it. But all, but the, what I do know is that they have mandated that ethnic studies be a course for graduation. Yeah, I'm remembering, Jen, one of the details of this, especially the anti-Semitic part was there were, wasn't there someone had actually like worked alongside um, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, who had, who somehow even came in and objected to the anti-Semitic content. I think there was something, they got somebody who was a very big figure in the civil rights movement to come and say, by the way, I am very much for civil rights. I am very much, you know, for these sort of things. And by the way, this content is actually anti-Semitic. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I don't know if that was one of the factors that got some of that shifted. Yeah, yeah, that is my understanding as well. Absolutely. And then you've got other people as well speaking out about it. I mean, you, you've got uh, professors like Dr. Tabi Ali, 
who she was just recently kicked out of De Anza College because of the way she was doing DEI and her her collaboration and her with the Jewish community and calling out some of the anti-Semitism that you find in a lot of kind of the DEI courses. So yeah, there's numerous people. And that's a big thing with this coalition, by the way, is we are very specific in making it a multi-ethnic coalition because we want, there are voices out there, Asian voices, black voices, you know, Hispanic voices that say, this is not how we're going to create a community. And yet a lot of the ethnic studies is targeting these, you know, um, multi-ethnic organizations and groups and communities saying we're coming to help. But a lot of the organizations that we're working with, which are multi-ethnic are saying, help who? You know, all you're doing is creating further division by, you know, separating us out based on these immutable characteristics. You know, I might, I, I don't, uh, I don't want to play devil's advocate at all, but there's an argument to be made that we're over-engineering this whole process of education. In So what about just teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic and leaving all the social studies out of it, leaving all of this, like I, I homeschool my kids. I wouldn't let them near a school. I, I at this point, the way that the, the schools are, are running, I, I, my two daughters went through the public education system and it was okay. It wasn't fabulous, but it was okay. And they're in their twenties now. And I have two sons who are younger and I wouldn't it, over my dead body. Will they go to school? It's just, it's maybe that's an extreme thing to say. It is an extreme thing to say, but that's how I feel about what's happening in education. But if there were a school that offered simply reading, writing, and arithmetic, maybe some extracurriculars, maybe an a la carte offering for, for history and science labs and, and some sports, I would consider putting my kids into some, in a, in a program like that. But at this point, I don't want, I don't want to trust anybody's version of what ethnic or social studies is, because it feels like it's just, it's just different forms of social engineering. It's just saying this social engineering is going too far. So let's create a different social engineering system to address the, the deficits or the, the overreaching of that one. I, I don't know, maybe that that's kind of inarticulate. And I, you could probably argue me three different ways about that, but that's how I'm feeling right now. Well, let me ask you this. To the extent that I mean social studies and history, I don't know how, you know, we can argue how they overlap. I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I just think history is so exciting. I, I don't think we should take history off the social studies. Again, I'm not sure if you're if we're, if we're you know calling history and social studies you know, the same things. I think civics is really important and we don't really teach civics. And the way we could teach history though is much in the same way. Uh, my my co-author Wink Twyman and I you know, we just recently released a book called Letters in Black and White, and before that book came out, we actually uh, took the 1619 project. You know, they, it's got a curricula, right? That that some schools have adopted their curricula, and we took it and we created the alternative 1619 project. This is what I love. This is what to me education should be. It took every essay of the 1619 project and said, read it, like don't ban it, read it, but then read this. 
and for every single essay, you can find it, by the way, if anyone's interested, we've got it on our truthinbetween.com website. I mean, you just go and download it. So it's, again, the Alternative 1690 Project. That's learning to me. Yes, I believe in math and I believe in reading. I think you're absolutely right. But this critical thinking where you would sit down and say, read two things that are totally opposite and then come to your own conclusion. I, I think that that's important to do in life. I'm just not sure that a government education center is where my kids need to get that kind of learning. And I, I feel like the, the less the, there's always going to be incentives to engineer a certain kind of citizen. And the more, I think the more individually tailored education can be the better. And I would favor a system where the government education centers if, if we're going to pay into that and we're going to agree that as a social compact, we like this model, we want parents to be able to go to work for a few hours a day while the kids get out and, and learn under some other system, I would favor a model where they were as cut and dried as possible and other aspects of the child's education could be tailored by the parent and there could be opt-in. You, you know, I, th I do believe that history is very important. I'm just not sure that I want the government to be in charge of teaching my kids about history and social studies. And, and I would lump those together under one umbrella, but they are of course, different, different fields under that umbrella. But sorry, I, maybe I'm being too argumentative about this for this context. I was, but. <laughs> I was just wondering if, if the kind of like uh, the ingredients needed to for a kind of Paolo Freire march through the institution, it doesn't need to be anything outside of maths or English because you'd still have a literature list to decolonize. You know, you'd still you'd still have uh, applicants for, and outcomes and you'd have reasons to go systemically after certain things. You still have, you know, you could start <laughs> thinking about Western maths if you wanted to, I guess. People, this, the, the, the thing still is that we need to defend against uh, liberal institutions. Uh, I guess that would still be the case. Like Jennifer, I'd love it if you could sort of come and sort of transport yourself over to the UK and see what's going on in my course at the moment, because it's really subtle. It's just like these little subtleties that creep in. We get sort of administrators who email the cohort and say, um, could we love your feedback on how the course is going? And then please answer these questions. And one of the, one of the top questions is which which points of view are being marginalized, which points of view are being uh, privileged. You know, even in that sort of small change of language, I feel like things are being set up, people are being slightly coerced in a certain direction. And um, and it's, it's that's that's the thing that really bugs me. And I guess this is the thing that we really need to fight against is the sort of subtleties that it, unfortunately it only it takes someone who to know a bit about Paulo Freire or to know a little bit about critical theory to know that that's what's happening under the hood sometimes. Um, anyway, that's just my thoughts listening to you. Well, going back to, the, to, to school and, you oh. know, like, yeah, what, but here's, walk with me here and tell me what y'all think about this. So the Rosenwald schools, is everyone familiar with those? This is what, so it was Booker T. Washington and um, I think it's Joseph Rosenwald, but anyways, he was a, a Jewish philanthropist, last name Rosenwald, not sure of his first name. They ended up, Maya Angelou and John Lewis went through Rosenwald schools and they were community schools. So they, from what I, and I'm not an expert on Rosenwald schools, but what, from what I know about it, and this goes back to the idea of what we're talking about with, I don't know how we got home, homelessness in there, but creating these communities. And so these schools came together and the teachers were from the community. The community actually like paid for, they weren't private schools per se. Again, I'm not, I'm not, a, don't know the full history of it, but they were private in the sense that it was a community organized 
education system. And so I'm wondering, you know, and David, this isn't addressing what you were saying specifically, but you know, certain communities obviously are going to have different ideas and different views. And, and if you live in a certain community, you probably are promoting those ideas and views. And, 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 and that would be okay with you, right? Because that's the community that, you know, that's the community you want to live in. Um, but every so I would say you'd have the math, you'd have the science, you know, the hardcore stuff. And then it'd be up kind of to the community itself. And parents would be involved in this as well as teachers on what else is taught and how it's taught. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that would be a good thing or a bad thing, because again, you're going to have ideology in there, ideology around the, you know, the community. And then, but at the same time, how interesting and how rich would that be? Well, ideology is kind of inescapable, I think, but yeah. Um, I, I guess I, I just, I'm starting to see things very much in terms of centralization versus decentralization. Mm -hmm. And when we've collectivized to the extent that we have currently, and we have this, this, this ongoing centralization of education where everybody's learning the same thing all the time, we're, we're being taught in these very specific ways. It's very, very propagandistic and it's very, um, like the comprehensive sex ed, for instance, that's come in all over the place all at once. And the ethnic type studies, the CRT, the SEL being pushed in the schools. This doesn't give a lot of opportunity for individual, like I, I had this, this discussion with somebody just yesterday talking about democracy and how every uh, children need to go to school in order to learn critical thinking so that they can vote uh, meaningfully and and I'm thinking, gosh, what the way that we're teaching kids is with this uniformity of thought. How is, if you're inculcating people into like the party, you're teaching them from the very beginning, think this way, this is how a good person, this is an orthodox way of being. And then you ask them to put their vote in. How meaningful is that at, at the end of the day? What, what opportunity have they had for perspective taking outside of their one system of thought that they've been provided? And I feel like that's kind of what we're, moving towards. And a lot of the solutions that are being proposed also just propose to alter that, but keep that same. It's like the content is going to change, but the process is going to be the same. And I feel like maybe the process is the problem. The content could be better or worse, but the process is already problematic. Well, you used a word that that um, was on the tip of my tongue, but they, I, this is what I was talking about with the Rose, Rosenwald schools is decentralization. Mm -hmm. I really think, and then, you know, David, going back to your point of how things get, you know, kind of seeped in and seep in through our language, I think that if you decentralize it and, you know, base your education kind of on the community that you're in, there is a more critical eye, the language is, is, is similar, so you're dealing with people who kind of have similar context, I don't, and again, I don't know, I mean, I, uh, I'm kind of just talking off the cuff right now, but Leslie, I agree. I, I really, I don't know what the answer is because I do believe that uh, universal education is a right. And yet the universalism of it, I think, and that the unity and the uniformity of it is absolutely a problem. I don't know how to solve it. Yeah, and what and it tends to reflect whatever the sort of predominant thinking is at the time. And right now, all of this critical theory has really caught on. And um, I, I think also the thing to remember is 
even if a school, you know, purportedly only focused on reading, writing, arithmetic, the real basics, you can absolutely still implant ideology into that. There was um, a teacher I spoke to who said that um, one of the <laughs> one of the worksheets in math class for these kids in elementary school, there was this question that was something to the tune of, uh, you know, Miss Jones class has 20 students, 3% of those students, I, three, three of those students identify as trans, trans. What percentage of the students in her class identify as trans? So it's still, it's, you know, it's just, um, you know, it's kind of like in the Soviet Union, everything, you know, was, was tainted. Nothing stays, nothing stays pure, you know, even that's how you've got Lysenkoism, with we're going to go with what this scientist says about how to grow grain because he's a party loyalist. So it can absolutely get in, you know, no matter what. And I think for a lot of us, we're finding ourselves living in a world that is, the prevalent thought directly um, is in direct opposition to our values. Now, I'm just wondering if there isn't some place, like a networked model, because I, I can see communities just getting really in isolation too, and just not being that in touch with, right. I don't know, just some other things going on. And so I don't know whether without a central figure, if there isn't something about having little nodes of different communities that have some more context-specific learning, but are, are open to innovations from the side or, or at least interchange. So they're not just, you know, only looking at one thing one way or something like that, but, but not having something that's pressing down so much. You know, there's, um, David, have you heard of, she's in the UK, uh, I might be saying her name wrong, Catherine Burblesing? Yes, I have, yeah. She uh, She's sort of known as like the fiercest head, headmistress in, in the UK or something, but she's actually, yeah, yeah great. Um, and she does some traditional. Yeah, you, you go, you go, Jennifer. No, no, you you know more than me. I mean, I'm 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 enamored with what she's doing. I don't know if it's the answer, but yeah, I mean, she, she, her big thing is like you teach the three R's, right? Reading, writing, arithmetic. Done. You 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 teach manners. You show up on time. You know, you tuck your shirt in. Um, and you know, she works primarily in lower income neighborhoods, and to great effect. Yeah, she gets great results, doesn't she? From every yeah, from everything I've heard. So, and I guess I, David, you might know more than me. Is it she? It's not a private school. Is it a magnet school or a charter school? I don't know. I don't know either. I, but I know it's not. It's not like a private school at all. It's it's very much publicly funded, um, and it, it it I think it prides itself on being uh, you know taking lower income students and pupils. And still getting really good results that kind of start to rival some of the the more private schools in the in the kind of London area. Yeah, yeah, proves it can be done. Exactly. <laughs> so very much it like structures like that. It depends. I mean, I think for some people who have maybe a a background which is a bit more chaotic, they can really use a lot of structure. That that can be superb. There could be other people. I'm thinking of some people like in our community who. Um, maybe we're kind of felt restricted and like are like need a freer space to learn in. There's also a school Jordan Peterson talked about. He interviewed some guy that the kids 
really developed together. Like they learned how to develop their own school and they gave them some bounds, but not that much. And so I think maybe people that might come from a less like disrupted nervous system or, you know, like, like that type of environment, they need that sort of freedom. Um, so I think it kind of depends on like what, what the kids coming in with, what type of environment would be more suitable. Well, you know what, I, I think that there's been a real creep in terms of how much we expect the education system to be responsible for in our kids' development. And it's it's come, it, it, at one point, it was just send your kids to school to learn these particular skills. And now it's, there's this constant question of, are kids getting enough this? Are kids getting enough that? And when we're thinking about like, there's this, it seems like the argument is almost based on this neglected child who has so little so you almost are blank slating this kid they don't have food they don't have love they don't have this they don't have that they don't have medical they don't and so the schools are continually adding in functions and as they add in functions to catch that that most needy person they're applying that across the board and assuming that role for the most people possible so that's becoming the baseline expectation that schools are going to be kind of like your life center and you just go home at night and sleep I mean, we're, it feels like that's where we're heading, especially with the, the, the new mental health and medical initiatives that are taking, yep. you know, the clinics and putting them into schools. So kids are getting their checkups and they're, you know, they're getting um, prescriptions at school and they're getting, you know, their counseling services are enhanced. So, and as we're doing this, there's less and less room for the parents to create the kind of culture that they want to create in their family and, and in their home. Um, so I guess that's, that's to me, to, to my way of thinking, and that goes along with the whole idea of centralization, it's putting the power back in the smallest, smallest pockets possible and basically bringing the power back to the individual, bringing back the, the authority and the sovereignty of the individual and of the family. And uh, making, we do need education reform, but I think we need to really look at stripping down what's happening in schools to the very, very minimum. What do we absolutely need schools for? And do we need them at all? I know that's kind of radical, but <laughs> well, that's where I'm at. I mean, I'm at, a, I'm at the point where I do not need a school for my kids. I do not need that. Yeah. That's where you're at. It is, you know, I'm, you could probably find a lot of kids who are better at math than my kids, but, um, but I'm not sure that that's what life is all about right now. You know, I was blessed, Leslie, you and I are talking about this one-on-one. -on -one. Um, if it wasn't my, my, my son's school, he's in, he's in college now, but for um, high school, he got into a magnet program that was part of the public school, but you had to apply to get into it. And, and it was in theater. And so he just that that is his passion. He loved it. And he still had to take the other courses, but he was very much, you know, speaking of communities, he was part of this theater community. And that really like just fed who he was as a person. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just wondering too, with that idea, if there isn't more of like when we're talking about the individual child, I mean, obviously you you've got to universalize some things if we're, if we're going to even have universal education, which, you know, maybe, maybe we don't. But I mean, I love that idea of being able, like if a kid loves math, that they're in the math academy and, and that's their focus. And maybe they do take like a reading course here or there, but, you know, this really doing a better job 
at educating our kids and educating to their strengths instead of like, you know, just making everyone like the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't think that I'm, I'm, uh, these are not, I'm brainstorming and spitballing and just having this loose conversation around this. This isn't something that I've really tried to articulate a framework for before, but I think that the free market and individuals will, when you, you were talking about a, 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 a universal right to education, I had to think about that. And I'm not sure what I end up thinking about that because I don't think that it's necessarily something that I expect the government to provide or want the government to provide. I do think that people will come together on their own to form that. And so I think you will find parents and groups of people in your community that probably do really um, enjoy watching that math ability flourish in their kids and have a passion for math and will provide academies like that. I think that the market can create those opportunities for kids. And like in, in our homeschool group, we have parents who offer different things that are um, specific like art offerings and math and different tutoring because they enjoy doing that with their own kids. And so they invite other kids in it. And that's even within just a small home homeschooling, unschooling community. We have um, opportunities for art and music and sports and and focus math groups and things like that, just really hyper local. And I'm not sure I think that we need a giant system that's engineered in order to provide these things. In fact, I think something that that happens when you engineer something like that is you create a, a bureaucracy and a demand for uniformity that ends up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I love the trend and I'm, I'm in, um, enthusiastic about seeing it grow, but I love the trend of the, the homeschool pods mm-hmm. where you do yeah. like, the different parents who are, you know, take on different roles in that. And I think in some ways that's kind of similar to what I was at least, or at least what my interpretation of the Rosenwald mm-hmm. schools are. Yeah. It sounds right? like it. It really does. No, I think that's really exciting. And that kind of sprang up during COVID because a lot of parents who realized that their kids just were not able to learn remotely, especially with young kids where they're distractible. Some of them were getting together and, you know, a bunch of families getting together and hiring a teacher to teach in um, a neighborhood home, you know? And um, I think that's also a great opportunity for teachers who maybe want to be free to teach and have a real connection to their students and the parents without being forced to maybe teach um, ideology that conflicts with their values. Um, But I I just think that's, I love to see alternative things like that spring up and different, you know, just different ways of doing things. But the reality is most people are going to go through the public school system And so what is happening there is extremely important because right now kids are being indoctrinated into things that I think are harmful to them and will be harmful overall to society. And so that's a big question is, you know, how, how to, how to address that. And I know, you know, ILB is trying to address that and come up with, you know, a, a positive, a positive way of doing ethnic studies, um, and you know, uh, help people to appreciate different cultures, different ethnicities, um, but without, you know, some kind of ideology that's you know crazy like communism or, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, I mean, this is 
this is what's happening in our schools right now. And teachers are being told you are an activist first and an educator second. And you're an activist in the way that we tell you to be an activist. And it's a very neo-Marxist form of activism. And it's also completely run through with all the gender ideology. Mm -hmm. Jen, I'm wondering, have you, as you've developed the curriculum, um, I'm curious, you know, we, I think we have at least one or more people in like the solid ground community who are teachers who don't like the way things are going. You don't get to hear from them so much, but I'm curious if you like have been able to run your curriculum by teachers who go, yeah, we'd love to be able to have this if our district would let us like, like what, I don't know if you had much response or, or floated it by people who might be in the position to be teaching something like that and what they've been saying about it, if they're, if they're open. Yeah, I, I'm not the one who's uh, at the forefront of actually pushing the curriculum or, and I did not create the curriculum itself. But I know that there has been, when, once teachers know that there is this alternative out there, there has been a very enthusiastic response. So there are several districts in California that have been grateful to us for having, offering an alternative. This kind of goes back to, I'm gonna get a little, not off topic, but you know, switching back though to the whole ethnic studies, Leslie, what you're saying, honestly, I, I don't even know that we need ethnic studies. But the fact that we, the schools and, and like, like Jen said, you know, as long as most kids are going to go to the public schools mm -hmm. and most, you know, public schools, at least in California are going to mandate this, at least let's do it right. You yeah, know, that's but, a good but, argument. I mean, you're saying meet it, meet it where it is right now, provide something yeah. that meets the demand right now. We can, you know, that maybe there's a conceptual argument about what is happening on the larger scale, but what you're doing addresses something that's immediate. Yeah. But I, I, I would agree. Anything with the word studies in it, you know, is is, is problematic. I don't think, honestly, it, it, I'm fighting for a different kind of ethnic studies. But I think Leslie, I, I lean to you and be like, why are we even doing this? Yeah. If you if if you do get rid of the ideology, how much of what is left of of ethnic studies? Are you just like, do you, does everything just fall apart? Like, I mean, like, yeah. If we can't cover it with history or world religion or our, we have religious education in the UK, like, I don't know, what, what, what's left? Cultural, though? Isn't there, weren't there some things like, oh, taking a dance class that was, I don't know, some kind of cultures class, like it is a little bit of cultural exposure that maybe one might not have had somehow. Well, and when you study geography and you study, you know, the social, the whole social studies, um, idea when I was in school was you talked about you'd have a unit on this place a unit on this place and I'm not sure that that was done in the right way but it was it is a way of conceptualizing where you still talk about regional local and global culture um, somebody in here says I wanted to respond to something uh, Anders Kallenberg says will markets take care of disenfranchised and disabled kids and so that that is a that is an interesting question. I think that yeah. my first my first response to that, and I'm there's probably a lot of other ways to respond to this, is yes, I mean the government is a group of people, and there is always what what creates people wanting to take care of disenfranchised and disabled kids. What what is that? It's an impulse within people where they see a need and they try to fill it. Right now, there's a way to fill it through this governmental school structure but i don't think that just because you remove that structure you remove that impulse and those people who are motivated to do those things and so i think that we will always have people who are motivated to create systems 
and ways to to work with the needs that they find in their community. I don't think government is, I don't think you take government out of the picture and everything else falls apart. It's not like people become psychopaths that don't care about people who are suffering. So I just think that you would have to find a different solution. There would be different solutions. I don't know exactly what those would be. I noticed my left-leaning part goes, I don't know about that. Really? <laughs> well, then what is it that the I government- be, I might be completely wrong. I, I just watched my impulse arise. Oh, like, yeah. I don't know. Those would probably be the, if they're, especially they're disenfranchised, who's going to make money trying to serve them? They don't have money to pay for it. So who's going to fund it, right? Well, where does so the money that's... come from right now? It comes Taxes. from people. Yeah, but but who wants to earmark it? The tax money was back in people's pockets and the parents of, say, those children, whatever, could pay for the schooling or maybe that would work. Maybe, maybe. I, I'm, not, I'm not even ser totally serious about my own response, but I just noticed like my, my like knee jerk, you know, like, ah. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, sure? religious communities have tended to fill that need. Yeah. Uh, bef before you use government to do that, you use charity to do that. So there's always been a charitable impulse in culture that comes in to take care of. And yeah, maybe to a, to a better or worse extent, maybe sometimes it doesn't work very well, but I could argue that it's not working very well right now. Yeah, no, no, that's true. That's true. I just was like laughing at myself even though I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm the same actually, like that is my biggest concern, right? I, I, don't, I don't want people to get, get behind it. And one of the things that I think about when I think about the trend of homeschool pods, which I love, I think is amazing. But I think we are at the moment, the way things are being done is we are create, creating like a, a new second class citizenship for those who can't afford to or whose parents, you know, don't okay. have the time to, to, to be part of this homeschool stuff, you know, and, and so and so many kids and particularly more so arguably with working class families, they have to have a place to send their kids. You know, they don't have the option or the luxury. And I do worry that that's one of my concerns is that this trend, which I think is so positive, if it's mismanaged, is only going to create more, you know, economic dislocation. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I feel you on that. And also, you know, it was um, Deborah's left leaning side was, was kicking in about, about um, people being sort of uh, disenfranchised or disabled people being served. And my cynical side was creeping in. Of, I don't trust people to necessarily do the right thing just because I don't. So. Yeah, like, like, like the good intentions could actually like make the matters worse. And these people that are helping are like actually exacerbating the situation somehow. I guess I just want to know how does government make that better? How does putting the government in between people and their needs and their impulses make things better? Because government is still just people and their needs and their impulses, but with a bureaucratic structure in the middle of it. I mean, well, how does, how does because... that structure... Because then there's, because with the structure comes laws, mm -hmm. um, you know, a right to free edu to free public education, which means that also kids that are struggling, they still retain that right and their parents can advocate for their child and for the child's rights within a system and within laws that are already established. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they are more likely, I think, to get their needs met because mm -hmm. basically the school has to, mm -hmm. um, there's laws governing it. And so 
I mean, there are, I have quite a few clients who are teachers and um, they tell me about all the different, one of them is a special ed teacher. And so some of the lengths that the school goes to in terms of meeting the children's individual needs are extraordinary. I mean, they are getting extraordinarily excellent services. Mm. And, and within that framework, the parents are participating and advocating if they think there's something else that needs to be addressed. And so in some ways, that's, that's really successful. I, I mean, I've always believed strongly in public schools. I'm horrified by what public schools are doing now. But I don't, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because I think it is so important for people to have access to that. And I mean, I'm in a, a good position now where I work from home and I can work evenings. So I could, if I had young kids, I could homeschool them. But I also realize that is not the majority of the population. And so I really want to, um, I want this, the public schools to come back to their senses and get this hateful ideology out of the schools. I think it would be so, interesting to explore even further back in that, like, why do we need schools in order for people to work? Because the school is the the idea that the school is a free thing that enables you to work is also sort of illusory because it's it very much does occupy an economic position in the family, in the in the family's life. I mean, it's an actual paid thing that we have outsourced, and we've we've been uh, we've had funds drained from us in order to pay this. So you're working in order to put your kid in school in some sense, but by virtue of this taxation social contract. So I think it's really, really interesting. We have a system where we're very much dependent on that. I hear you about that. I was a single mother. There's no way I could have figured out how to homeschool my daughters. It was, I couldn't have done that if I'd wanted to, I had to work and I had the school as, as the place where I could have put them. If I were in that position now, I would, I would be my kids, my boys would be in school and I'd be experiencing all the frustrations and the benefits that come along with having to avail yourself of that system. It's really interesting. Yeah. And what you're making yes. some excellent points, Jennifer, because how things are right now, family, I mean, if, if we were to just remove that system entirely, there's a lot of people who are really dependent upon it and who are really receiving a lot of benefits from it that would find themselves just the, the bottom would drop out. And so that, that's a really good point. I just wonder if we couldn't also create systems like that without the big centralized bureaucratic government. You said something that, I mean, again, I don't have the answers. Thank God I'm not a politician, but you, we, we pay so much in taxes for the public school systems. I mean, there is, I feel like there is solutions there where that money goes back to the individuals where they can make, you know, choices and use that money that that is already being taken from them to, um, to make choices on, on their children's education, whether that is to pay themselves to be their child's teacher or to pay a pod, you know, I mean, so there is money there that could go back to the individual. Yeah. And some places like California does that. I, I, um, my brother used to live in California and his wife, um, they have several, they have a bunch of kids and, uh, she was homeschooling for a little while and receiving, um, a, some kind of stipend for her kids' education and might've been a couple thousand a month. I mean, it was quite, or, or per semester, it was, it was significant enough that it helped her to buy curriculum and, um, 
you know, put her kids in programs and stuff. So it was, it was a nice stipend for homeschool families. I don't know if they still do that, but I know that's a thing that's been done. Yeah. Did we solve the world's problems? <laughs> We've done it. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> well, well, it does all go back to where we started with liberal values. It all does go back though to, to individual autonomy an agency. Yeah. And I think that when we're talking about the school system, that part of the problem is, is that we have taken away some of that agency and some of that autonomy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, it's, it's exciting to see and have conversations about what could be done differently. I think that that's, it's really, I think it says something about where we are in, you know, with a lot of people waking up to the severity of the problem and the challenge that's in front of us, that we have really passionate and well-intentioned people coming together to, to try to think about how could this be done differently to be more beneficial to families and children. And I really like the way that you're, you're thinking about this, Jennifer. It's really interesting to have these conversations. Thank you all for, for this. Does anybody have any final thoughts before we close out? that it's key to be able to even talk about this freely i mean like there could be places where even bringing up some of these ideas could be shut down as like right wing or like something ridiculous right and mm -hmm. so continuing to make the space where we can even have these conversations is so important mm -hmm. yeah well jennifer thank you for joining us today it's really great to have you i hope we can do this again with you sometime and love it maybe solve more of the world's problems <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much for all that y'all do with solid ground. I mean, just so incredibly, it, it starts with the individual and you're giving, you're empowering people in this way. So, well, and you brought in the honky tonk, which was a really important <laughs> aspect. <laughs> you and David. Y'all. Y'all. Thanks y'all. This has been really good. <laughs> it's been real good to see y'all. <laughs> All right. See everybody next uh, Monday and thank you for joining us.